Okay, so in the sequence, we're now up to molding and casting. Uh, this is one of my favorite classes. If 3D printing is overhyped, useful but overhyped, uh, molding and casting gets very little attention in popular press. Um, uh, let's see, let me also mute Santa. Um, molding and casting gets, and, and uh, read the question when somebody has Santa's question. Um, molding and casting gets very little attention in popular press, but is one of the most important and useful processes. So hopefully this will be an eye-opening week. This is one of my favorite ones. So here's a great example of this week. Um, this week, the group assignment is going to be testing your materials. And then the individual one is making a mold and casting parts. So a great example of this week's assignment is this was Alex Schaub in Amsterdam. And his project was a foosball table. And so to make the foosball table, uh, in machinable wax, he makes a mold. He then casts a rubber in that mold. And then here he's doing what's calling insert. No, I'll mute Santa. Um, he's doing insert molding. He's casting the um, Davids right on the arms of the foosball table. And then if you look at this lineup, this is really the heart of this week. Um, these parts have good mechanical properties. They have a better surface finish than all but the most advanced 3D printing. And he has a whole line of them produced. Once he has the mold, he can crank them out. And so he can reproduce them rather than making them one at a time. And so in the time to make a 3D print, he made the mold. And then he goes into production and produces these parts. And so this is a great example of what you'll learn how to do this week. Um, so, uh, there are multiple kinds of injection, uh, of molding. Injection molding, which is, you know, the, the, the parts around you, stuff like this, are made that way. Uh, uh, an injection molder um, is, there are little machines, but typically these are pretty large machines, where you melt a plastic and a screw forces it into a mold. The molds have to be pretty substantial to hold up to that. Um, the screw is how you load it in. Runners are how it gets distributed. Gates then go into the mold cavity. Vents let the air out. A parting line is where the mold faces meet. Flashing is the little bit of material that gets into that. Um, those are used for high volume production. Uh, when you want to make 100,000 parts. Uh, insert molding is where you mold around an object. And so Boss did a fun thing for this week. Um, he took his Fab ISP, and for this week what he did is um, he made a mold 
um, around the fab ISP that let you cast it. So insert molding is, um, in fact, here, Bas, explain how you did that. Uh, yeah, so I modeled the, um, so at first I modeled, and by, by that time I was still using Rhino, so I modeled the 3D, um, um, mod so, sorry, <laughs> modeled the 3D part from uh, my circuit board from Eagle, um, placed the components on so I knew where everything would be. Main thing there was actually the connector, because um, I needed to keep the, uh, the six-pin header clear. Um, so I actually used an actual part uh, in that. Um, all the angles that you see in there are chosen so that I could use a, um, I think I was using a 132nd end mill. Um, but then how do you hold it so that you can, how did you hold it so you can cast around it? Yeah, it's a bit sneaky because that's actually not shown. <laughs> I actually used a bit of a Vero board to, uh, so actually this mold is in two parts. So one mold slides into the other mold. Um, but to keep the circuit board at the right place, because one part is not so much of a problem because the connector is actually shoved into the mold. You can actually see um, the top image that Neil is showing here at the moment. Um, there is a, um, you, you would slot the connector into the top um, piece there. But to keep the USB uh, lines pressed against the mold, I basically had a set of pins shoved in. Uh, they were soldered into a Vero board on the, and cut it to, got to the right length. And then they were shoved through the polyurethane mold to push the um, circuit board against the top mold. Mm, okay. Um, so the net result is instead of having feet and standoff and attachments, you just simply cast around the whole thing. And then you have this you know, nice looking and tough and monolithic packaging uh, of your project. Yeah. Oh, and if you, forget something, if you forget something with making your mold, and actually a good picture there as well, um, uh, the, um, this type of wax that you can need when yeah. you know, it becomes warm, uh, warm enough to, to, to shape it, um, that's a good saving grace if you need to make um, uh, a cast hole again. Yeah, we'll talk about that in a minute. That's this stuff. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Um, so that's insert molding. Uh, vacuum molding, this is, for example, a tool in the CBA shop. It's, this is what product packaging is made out of. You take a sheet of plastic, you heat it, and you pull a vacuum, and it smushes around. And it's not high-resolution feature. The killer app for that is product packaging is made that way. Um, blow molding is how bottles are made. You inflate a heated material into the mold. Rotational molding is where you spin the mold to drive the material through it. Um, we're going to do flexible or soft molding. And the reason is by going from a rigid mold to a soft mold, it's much more forgiving that um, the soft mold can deform around the part you're releasing. Um, this is one of the best assignments done for this week. Um, so here is a machine controller. Um, and everything you see was molding and casting. The case and the buttons were all done by molding and casting. And so here's the wax. It's designing the case and it's designing the buttons. Then um, he did a really neat process where, so here, here's the case. And this is done not by printing, not by machining, but he molded the case. So that's a monolithic cast. But the really neat thing he did is this is the mold to make the flexible buttons. But 
but he did it in the stages. He put one material in the letters and then a second material behind them. And so that what gives this two tone and then the buttons underneath. And then when you put it all together, this whole thing was done as a molding and casting project. And aside from being nicely finished, um, he can now go into short run production. This form, you wouldn't make 100,000, but you could make 100 parts this way um, in a short run production. And so this is a beautiful example of soft tooling. Um, One-sided molds, you cast it. Two-sided molds have two parts, but you can go way beyond that. The, in my lab, the biggest we've gone up to is a 12-part mold. And so this was a fun assignment. Um, uh, this student wanted to make a hypercube, which in 3D looks, it's a 4D cube, here it is in 3D. Um, and so the way he did that is each of these is a part of the mold. And then um, this is a six-part mold. And so you assemble the mold, you cast it, and this is what comes out. And you would think you would have to 3D print that. But as long as you can decompose your design into a set of projections, you can make complex nested features as a mold. And then you, you take apart the multi-part mold. So you, you can go way beyond a two-part mold to make complex nesting features that you wouldn't think you could do in a single casting. Um, when you make a multi-part mold, you need to register them. So here's a simple example I did. Um, if you look at Alex's design, um, he has bumps going around, and you, 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 you use the bumps to align the molds. Um, I don't like that. I don't recommend it because it doesn't hold very well. Um, what I like much better is if you look at this, this is this makes this little cup. And this is one part of the mold, this is the other part, but it fits continuously. The registration between the two-part mold isn't um, a little bump in a slot, but it's a continuous perimeter. And it's much better to have one whole mold fit into the other mold, then you get much tighter uh, fit. And then you also see, I put the edge of the mold right at the lip of the top. So there's a little bump there from the seam, but you can't see it because it's registered where the mold sides fit. You have to think, do you, you do have to think a little bit more careful about where you put your in inflows uh, with right. mold type and, like that. And we'll, co we'll come to that. And I guarantee you'll confuse yourself this week because going from the positive to the negative to the positive, Almost always you get it wrong at first. And, and um, so this week is all about SmoothOn. Um, SmoothOn is the vendor for molding and casting. A lot of their business is things like Hollywood special effects or architectural details. But you know, ju just as, as this is updating, they have a huge range of molding and casting materials. And all the things, you know, as just this site refreshes, Everything you see here is done by making a mold and casting it. Um, they have a great range of materials for casting, and they have really good uh, tech support people that can help advise on it. Um, uh, they have local distributors. So it, this is a local distributor in Boston where you can go see all of their materials. Um, Blick is an art vendor that has a number of molding materials I'll talk about. 
um, boat buildings uses similar materials. So boat yards have materials you can use for molding and casting we'll talk about. Um, uh, I'm a fan of gypsum-based materials. And so this is a vendor of those, plaster.com. Um, and then this is a really interesting one. This is a vendor of high temp material and they make molding and casting ceramics. So it starts as a green clay that you put in the mold. And then uh, once you cast it, um, you take it out, you fire it, and then you make a really hard high temperature ceramic part that way with the very same process we're gonna cover. Um, this is a link to the standard um, uh, Fab Lab inventory. Um, and so in here are a number of materials. So this first one is what Bas was mentioning. Um, this is a material that's hard at room temperature, but it gets soft just above it. And so if you heat it just a little bit, you can work it. Um, and so it's great for mold repair when you make a mistake. And the other killer app from this is if you had an object and you wanted to copy the object, you smush it into that, you take it out, and then um, you can uh, cast from an object that way. Um, really important for this week is machinable wax. Um, number of vendors, this is one we use. Um, easy to machine, you can machine it as fast as your machine goes. Great surface finish. And um, it doesn't melt at the temperatures we use, but if you heat it a bit more, you can melt it and reuse it. And in fact, if you're clean, you can take the shavings from your machine and you can melt those down and reuse it. So you can actually reuse these many times. So that's the main material for this week. Um, for big molds, you can get um, uh, rigid foam. Um, and so if you wanted to make like an architectural scale molding, this is two inches uh, by um, 48 inches by eight feet for about $30. Um, not nearly as high resolution, but what you can do is you can seal it with a gesso that you use for sealing canvases. You, you can paint epoxy on to seal it. You can also use hot air to smooth it. This is for making really uh, big molds. Um, alginates um, are gooey, messy material. Um, what these are for is casting human, like if you want to make a mask of a face, this is biocompatible. And so these are, uh, the main killer app for these is casting from life. Um, urethanes come in rubbers that make tough, flexible materials that either you can use as a mold or you can use as the part. If you wanted to make, say, wheels for like the vacuum cleaner robot, you might make urethane rubber wheels. And then they're urethane um, uh, uh, plastics and, there's a wide range of these, and in particular, um, these can be uh, dyed with colors. And the, so there's a lot of different additives that you can use to make solid colors or textures with them um, to class, cast uh, plastic parts. Um, for clear molds, there are um, rubbers um, and also epoxies that you can use to cast clear parts. Um, then uh, there's silicones. And 
the one of the main materials we're going to use this week is a silicone called umu um, this is not the toughest but it's very very high resolution it's completely office safe there's no volatile um, and it doesn't stick to anything it's very very inert um, and so this is one of the um, materials that we'll be using this week, um, silicones. Uh, PDMS is um, uh, a variant that's used for very high resolution casting. What's called nanolithography is you make molds, but you make features almost at atomic size, down to, to nanometers. Um, Latex, I don't recommend for anything whatsoever because this you can brush on, which is nice, but you can only brush a thin layer, then it has to dry. And so it can take a week to keep adding the layers, otherwise you get a gooey mess. These other materials do deep section cures that let you make solid um, things. Um, you can mold thermoplastics and thermoset polymers. Um, uh, one of my favorite materials for this week are these. Um, so plaster by itself um, is weak and granular. Um, these are based on starting with the chemistry of plaster, calcium sulfate. Um, but um, uh, um, this one adds a polymer matrix. Um, this one adds a cement matrix. And so in these, the plaster is there to dry it internally, but the plaster isn't the structural material. Um, these each add another material to be the structural material. And so what's great about these is um, they're very low cost. It's like a dollar a pound. Um, when you mix them, they're very low viscosity. Um, they're very easy to pour in the mold. They do deep section cures, and then they make very hard parts. So these are great for learning molding and casting, and they're very friendly and easy to work with. And so the recommendation for this week is to start with umu for the mold, and then hydrostone or dry stone as the casting material. And once again, it's very different from plaster. A plaster part by itself is very granular and will fall apart. These use the plaster to dry internally, but it's not the structural material. Then for metal casting, um, there are high temp alloys, but this is a very interesting alloy. This is a um, bismuth alloy that melts at 281F, so it's in the range of a toaster oven. Um, it doesn't involve heavy metals that are hazardous. And um, here's an example of a, a fab class project. There's a key trick with this. Is, so you make the mold. Um, and then the key trick with this is once you've made the mold, you have to dust it. And so, um, oh, I don't know. If, yeah. So what he's showing here is um, that for the metal to flow in the mold and wet it, um, you dust it with a talc powder and the talc powder helps the surface tension it helps it adhere to the mold and once you do if you don't do that you get lots of imperfections if you do it you get a much better finish and so um, here are coins that were made 
as an example uh, for this week's assignment. Um, these feel like metal parts. They're hard metal parts. If you drop them, they clatter like a metal part. Um, it's a bit brittle. If you load it, rather than flowing elastically, because of the grain structure from how this grows, it'll crack. So it's not a super strength metal, but it's a reasonable strength metal. And this is an office-friendly tabletop process um, to, to melt the alloy and, and, and cast from it. Um, and so you can make beautiful metal parts this way. And again, once you've done it, you can go into short-run production. Now, for higher temperatures, you can do aluminum casting. Um, for that, you need to be careful, because aluminum is a much higher temperature. And so usually the way it's done is with oil sands. Um, I think Jean-Michel is going to try doing this in hydrostone. You need to be really careful because at these temperatures, if there's any temperature, any moisture in your mold, it'll explode, which is a huge hazard. So um, you need to approach that carefully. Um, so there are sands and clays that are used for casting these higher temperature materials. Um, and then um, even higher temperatures, this is Sam, one of my um, students, doing something I don't recommend, which is putting your hand next to the few thousand degree glass. But what's going on here is he mills the mold, um, and then in the wood, um, it's wet, and the, the wet wood makes a steam barrier with a charcoal film that actually protects the wood but lets you go all the way up to, to glass molding uh, for higher temperatures. Then Aremco, I mentioned, lets you do ceramic molding. And then finally, this is a great opportunity with a caution. Um, uh, some of the materials are food safe, most of them are not. And um, food safe, it's sort of like kosher. Um, the whole production pipeline from start to end has to be food safe. So you, you can't guess. Um, it has to be labeled food safe, otherwise you're messing with your health. But the food safe materials let you cast food. And so a really fun thing you can do is make things like custom chocolates, custom candy, um, uh, custom food by making molds with them. Then there are a lot of additives you can add to the mold. So once you have the basic materials, um, uh, the additives, uh, these are used uh, in boat building. Um, one additive is glass spheres that reduce the density. Um, one is ceramic particles that introduce the heat transfer. Uh, one is graphite that improves the conductivity. One is elastomers for flexibility. Um, one is fibers to strengthen it um, in tension. Um, and one is uh, dyes for color. So most of these materials are very forgiving for other materials you mix in in additives when you cast it. So there are a number of steps. Um, the very first step is testing your material. Um, we'll come to safety in a minute. Um, but the first thing you should do is just like I explained about cutting air, and um, 
if you get cutting air wrong, you plow into the machine and you start a fire in your dust collector. Um, the equivalent for this week is uh, these materials have a lifetime. And um, they degrade over time after they've been opened. And also, if you mix them in incorrectly, they don't set properly. And when that happens, you get a gooey mess. And so you could spend all week making a beautiful mold, and then you put old material into it, and it never cures, and your mold is ruined by a gooey mess in it. So first, what you should do is take your materials you're going to use this week, and just make a little test cast. Take a little cup and pour some into it. Let it set, and, and make sure you know how to cast your materials. Don't make the mold first. Just do tests to make sure you, your materials are in good condition and you know how to cast them. So most of these are two component. You mix them. Um, generally, that's specified by weight. But to take two examples, um, the UMU um, that I recommend you use this week is uh, this is one-to-one. -one. This is a two-component material, and it's one-to-one -one by volume. So you don't need to measure anything. You just take a container, you pour in half of one material, half of the other material, um, you mix it, and then you pour it. Um, and so for the one-to-one -one materials, it's by um, volume. And then for these materials, like the hydrostone or dry stone, um, there's a number of materials, but these are the ones we're focusing on. Um, these you can do not by weight or volume, but by consistency. So when you start uh, mixing the hydrostone, um, you have the powder and the water. If you start adding water to the powder, um, Initially, it'll be really thick, and then it becomes creamy. Or in the opposite direction, if you add the powder to the water, there's a transition where it becomes like thick cream or thin yogurt. It becomes kind of creamy, and then that's the right consistency. And if you do a test, if you make it too thick or too thin, there's a range where it'll set, and just the consistency will tell you when it's ready to pour. And so you can use that to find the mix. So uh, you mix it, and then you pour it. Um, notice in this picture the very skinny bead there. So when you pour it, you don't want to trap air. And so you typically pour it not by dumping it in, but by pouring a thin bead, and that slowly flows. And then one of the things you want to do is um, if your mold, your mold has to have a place where you fill it, and it also needs a vent for air to get out. And if your mold um, is square to the ground, it's going to hit the surface in one go. And it's easy to trap air like that. And so uh, typically what you want to do is have a gradient so that you're continuously filling the mold, and the surface between the air and the resin moves across the mold and, and progresses eventually to the vent, 
And so it gets to the vent very last. You want to have like a front that moves through the mold as you're filling it. Um, the bane of molding and casting is bubbles. So um, if you do it right, you get the part on the right. If you do it wrong, you get the part on the left. Um, so the challenge is to get rid of the trapped air so you don't get bubbles like that. Um, there's a number of strategies for it. Um, one is, uh, um, let me make a note. Um, um, you agitate it, you mix your material and then you shake it, you agitate it to drive the bubbles out. Um, uh, one strategy that works actually really well is you paint the mold. You, 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 you paint the material in a thin layer on the surface, make sure it's completely coated, then pour the rest in. Um, a standard one is, and I think SmoothOn sells this, um, uh, is a vacuum chamber. And so this is a container where you pull a vacuum and then the vacuum sucks the bubbles out. You get a froth that comes up and then it comes down and you pull the bubbles out. Another approach is other um, uh, overpressure. So instead of pulling the bubbles out, you push them in. You add an overpressure that squishes the resin in. And a really good one is avoiding them in the first place. And so how you stir actually matters. Um, if you stir by doing this, Every time you do that, you're folding in bubbles. Um, if you shear, if you move like this, so you're shearing, but not scooping, um, then you're not driving the bubbles in in the uh, first place. And then um, if you um, pour, I'll add notes to these. If you pour in a skinny bead, the bubbles pop on their way down and they don't get in. Um, and so you can learn to mix resins and pour to avoid bubbles. Um, and so when you do your test cast, you'll find if you do it poorly, you'll get lots of bubbles. If you do it carefully, you get a beautiful uh, finished part. So then we're going to cure. Um, uh, the resins polymerize, there's a cross-linking. Um, the materials like hydrostone and drystone have a hydration reaction. Um, these are typically extremely exothermic, um, meaning they release heat. And they can release a lot of heat. So a common, very bad thing that happens this week is you mix too much material, it's sitting there in the container, and um, it starts heating. And eventually, it gets so hot, it melts your container. And once that happens, it's too late. There's nothing you can do. It's just a disaster. You can try to drop it in a bucket of water. Um, if you mix too much material, you can spread it out. Now. The exothermic reaction is a feature in that when you mix these materials, um, the temperature rises and then it comes back down 
and once it's come once it's come down, that tells you it's okay to demold. So the the thermal reaction tells you when you can demold. But if you're not careful, um, it'll release too much heat. And so when you do a big cast, like a concrete bridge, a huge amount of work comes into how you keep the concrete cool while it's setting. When you, if you do big casts, you need to be aware you're going to be releasing um, a lot of heat. Um, these all have a work time um, for, if we go back to the UMU, um, you can get these in different grades that have different work times. Um, yeah, the UMU, there's, there's um, the pot life is how long you have to work it. And then the cure time is how long until it's ready to demold. De and so a longer pot life, which gives you more time to work with it, means you have to wait longer to demold. We generally use the shorter one. So you have 15 minutes of pot life, and then um, in about an hour, it's ready to um, demold. Um, it's similar, the hydrostone or dry stone are, are um, similar to that. Uh, then comes demolding. Um, if you're making a rigid mold, not a flexible mold, um, you need to taper the mold. Um, if the mold has a flat face, it's hard to get the part out. You need a little bit of angle. Um, one of the reasons we make flexible molds is uh, if you have a flexible mold, you can even have an overhang like this. So this is your part. And then you can actually bend the mold around it. So um, fle flexible molds are much easier to remove um, than rigid molds. Um, depending on the combination of materials, they might stick. So hydrostone or urethane in silicone, they don't stick. But for example, urethane in urethane will stick. And so release agents are materials that help get stuff out of a mold. So smooth on has mold release and um, uh, dish soap, Vaseline, talc are all common materials you can use if you have materials that want to stick to each other. Storage <coughs> um, uh, is important. Um, once you open these materials, um, they have a temperature. First of all, the materials have a temperature range before you open them. And so if they were shipped at too high a temperature, um, it can ruin it so it doesn't set. So you open brand new silicone and you do everything perfectly and it doesn't set because somebody cooked it way too high in shipping. And usually that doesn't happen in the commercial supply chain but you need to be aware of that. And then once you open them, they have a shelf life. So you shouldn't open, let's see, the hydrostone and dry stone don't. They're, they're really inert, but the um, silicones and the urethanes um, do. Um, let's see, the smooth cast color. Um, let's see, I wanted to, sh I didn't show this image, I realized the smooth cast, um, uh, color, um, they have this whole family of tinting materials. Um, let me find a good image for it. Um, uh, 
they have this color match series that has, sorry, I'm looking for a good image to show, um, of um, uh, dyes, yeah, th this is the, the image. They have dyes you can mix. So it starts as a white plastic, but you can add these color match um, to it uh, to get all of these different colors. But once you open it, there's a ticking clock of, you know, uh, not, you know, a week is fine, but a month is not fine after it's open. You need to use it after you open it. And um, hygiene really matters in that these are generally gooey, sticky materials. And so when you pour it, if you're sloppy, you get gunk around the rim. Um, you need to be really careful about that because if you mix the materials in your gloves or how you're cleaning up, you can actually set the material right in the jar so you can never open it again. And so when you do molding and casting, um, you need a clean workspace and you need to make sure the containers stay clean, otherwise you'll corrupt the material, you'll, you'll mix the material. Now, safety is very important this week because um, here's, um, this is a beautiful looking clear material. So if we go back to clear, um, I linked to, um, this is a rubber, and um, this is an epoxy, um, and these are nice, but now look at this. This is a beautiful clear material, and I'm not, I don't link to it anywhere else. I don't mention it, and the reason is, um, let me get to the, um, this. Look right at the top of the description. This says, caution not for home use, industrial use only, read the SDS. Um, this material is extremely hazardous. And unless you wear it with a respirator, with body protection in a hood, um, you can end up in the hospital. And uh, this happened in Barcelona. Somebody used a material with this hazard um, ignored it and in the hospital. Sorry, that's Akin. Uh, somehow you unmuted in Akin. Um, ended up in the hospital, and it's even worse than that because um, he was sensitized, and his body chemistry is now sensitive to the things that triggered it, and now the reaction can be set off. It, it's really messed with his body chemistry. So the materials have safety data sheets. Um, here's a page on reading safety data sheets. And if we go back to the materials we're using, if you take any one of these, the vendors have, um, let's learn about the UMU. Um, each of these has on its page, let's go into it. Um, there's always the safety data sheet. Um, Uh, so, let's see, now that's the bulletin. Uh, each of these, sorry, let me find the SDS. Um, there's always the safety data sheet for each material. 
and it talks through all of the hazards to be aware of and all of the protection that you need. And again, these range from innocent to you end up in the hospital. And so the first assignment is read the safety data sheets for each of your material. If the material it doesn't have a safety data sheet, don't go near it. You need to know this. And these materials look the same, but range from innocent to very, very dangerous. So um, the urethanes, the so the silicone has no hazards. Um, the urethanes need ventilation. You don't want to breathe a lot of it. Um, the hydrostone doesn't. The materials beyond that have a lot of hazards. And so read the data sheets to know the safety of the materials you're using. Um, generally, you need good ventilation. You don't do it in a place that doesn't have air turnover. Um, you always do molding and casting with protection. Um, even the silicones that are inert, um, they're gooey and messy, so you wear gloves, so you don't have to remove your skin to get them off. Um, and you want to wear eye protection because you don't want to get them in your eyes. Um, you probably want to wear clothes protection. You don't want to get them in your clothes. And you want a good workspace in your lab. Um, it's a nice idea to have just big removable paper sheets that you can eventually throw away. Um, uh, and then um, part of the safety data sheets is it talks about the disposal of the materials. And the nastier materials are hazardous waste. You can't put them in the trash. Um, the basic material you're, we're using, um, uh, it's sloppy and messy. And so, for example, if you use the umu and you have a little bit left in the container, um, it's a good idea, rather than putting that in the trash, to mix up all the remaining resin. So what goes in the trash is the set material rather than the um, unset material. Now, the, this week, the assignment is to machine the mold. You could 3D print it, but there's two reasons, at least, for this. Um, one reason is this is a chance to learn about 3D machining. Um, but the bigger reason is, it, let's go back to the foosball. Um, you need um, to, to match this resolution, um, you need a state-of-the-art 3D printer to get anywhere near the surface finish that you can get in a machined mold like this. Um, so you can get much higher surface finish other than state-of-the-art 3D printing in the mold. Uh, you can do all of this on a little $1,000 milling machine. And a nice feature is the wax itself is even reusable. Once you've made the mold, you can go, go and make more of them. Um, and so it's a, um, you're not limited by the performance of your 3D printer in the, uh, making the mold. So I want you to machine the mold this week. Um, so you're going to be, when you made the large machining, you were cutting 2D shapes. Now you're going to be doing full three-axis machining. Um, Three-axis machining, again, if we go back to, let's leave that up, um, uh, to make something that looks this good, you have to move all three axes of the machine at the same time. So 
you're going to be doing rough cutting and then finish cutting. Um, uh, a rough cut is where you move horizontally and you make big steps and you do that quickly for chip removal. Um, and then finish cuts are where you, where you move all three axes at the same time. You don't do that to start because it's less effective at removing material because the end mill cuts fastest on its side, but you do that for the finish. And so the middle picture is a big step over where I'm doing three axis cuts, but you can see the passes of the tool. And then the final one is where I do a small step over and I get a much uh, finer finish. And so you'll design your mold, you'll do a rough cut um, to cut it out, and then you'll do a, a finish cut to make the finished surface. Um, again, this week there are many tool types. When you did the uh, PCB machining, um, there was just one tool. Here there's a, a wide range of tools. So uh, I like to buy these tools from Carbide Depot. And so if we start with uh, Carbide Depot and then um, uh, let's see. Um, so if we start going into um, uh, Carbide End Mills. Uh, so we've been, when you've been doing things like the standard machining, um, you've been using standard length end mills uh, that look like these. Um, one of the things you can do for this week is there are um, extra long end mills. So if you look at these end mills, they have a much longer shank. And so they let you get deeper into your part. Um, another kind of end mill is um, there are micro end mills, and those let you get into tiny features. Um, and then finally, there are combinations of these, which are long neck um, micro end mills. And so finally, if you get into these, um, these really, really, really want to break. Um, these get more expensive. Um, so instead of $10, this is now, say, $30, um, they really want to break. Um, so you need to be really careful with the speeds and feeds. Um, but these let you get deep in to make very skinny features. Um, and then- or you, can, uh, or you can just design around an end of your hand. Yes, I'm about to get to that. That's what Boss just said is one of the punchlines. And then finally, we get to um, their ball end mills versus flat end mills. And there's a lot of misunderstanding about how ball versus flat end mills relate. Um, so Boss's point is it's very important to design the mold around the tool. And in particular, if you design a mold that has really deep, really skinny features, um, you need a long neck tool and you're going to spend a lot of time getting in and out. And if you're not careful, you'll break it. Um, one of the things you should do this week is design around the tool. And so um, 
you know, like an eighth inch end mill, um, uh, let's see if I have one handy. Um, I don't, I don't have uh, one handy, but an eighth inch end mill is, uh, sorry, let me find one. Um, uh, Um, uh, th this is an eighth inch end mill, and what's nice about this one is the, the, the flutes match the shank, and this is typically the shank size on the machines you're using. And so this is a good compromise that you can get fairly deep, um, uh, but it has good chip removal, you can machine fairly quickly, and so if you don't have features finer than that, you can do the whole job just with this eight, eighth inch end mill. So don't be too greedy in making a deep, skinny mold with fine features um, because you're going to pay the price in the machining time um, and if you're not careful in breaking the tools. Design around end mills that let you remove quickly. Uh, oh, is that your project? Ah, that's, yep. you still yep. have that. Go ahead. Yeah, Bob. I still have it. <laughs> I have the molds here as well, the original molds. Oh, lovely. Don't, I don't have the programmer anymore though, that I lost that somewhere. Um, but so, so so this has some very tiny features to be able to put the um, uh, to be able to put the um, um, the the six pin header in yep. that I use for for making the mold. Um, so that's actually the that would have gone into there. Yep. Um, so I use a thirty two so a one over thirty two in gen mill. Uh, thirty two yeah. Yep. Yep. Now. Um, Flat versus ball end is a subject of a lot of confusion. Um, the usual sort of received wisdom is uh, um, you use the flat end for the, let's see, let's go back to just this picture. You use the flat end mill for the roughing and the ball end mill for the finish. Um, but here's what's misleading about that. It's actually more subtle trade-off. Um, flat end mill, and let's see if we go back to this picture, um, the flat end mill is much better at chip removal. If you look at the ball end mill in comparison, um, the ball end mill, the flutes are, are fading away down here where they come all the way down in the flat end. So the flat end mill is absolutely better at uh, just material removal. Um, uh, uh, cutting from the sides. So you want to rough out with the flat end mill because for this week's assignment, you're going to be limited by machining time. You want to have very fine step over to get fine, to get a smooth surface. So you want to rough as quickly as you can. So you rough with the flat end. Now, with a flat end mill on a flat surface, you get a flat bottom. With a ball end mill on a flat surface, you get undulation. So the flat end mill is also better for um, a flat surface. Now, the ball end mill, if we compare it, if you have a sloping surface, with the flat end mill, if you do horizontal passes, you get steps like that, if you mill in layers. With the ball end mill, on a sloping surface, if you machine in layers, um, what you get is a smoother undulating surface. And so that's what's good about a ball end mill. 
But if your software and your machine, here, boss, you're showing us something on your camera. That's actually because I, uh, since you're talking about indeed the ball end versus the um, yeah. the um, the flat end, because this was a 31, yeah. 30 second flat end mill, because I needed the edge between the two parts uh, needed to be flush. With a ball end mill, I would have had uh, a cordon running out. Okay, ah. And that these okay. are some of the features. These are the uh, USB leads that you're seeing okay, here. Just, yeah, good. Actually, we have your um, uh, have it here. Oh, you have it right there. Yeah. Um, here. Oh, let's get it in focus. Just yeah, give it. A, let, let the camera find it. Okay, uh, keep talking so you have the our focus. Yeah. Uh, so basically. It's uh, that's not the one that is complete. It has bubbles, but okay. there is another one. Might be lost, but Lovely. yeah. Okay, good. But um, okay. So if you're machining in layers, the ball end mill makes smoother undulations on a curving surface. But here's what's misleading. Um, if you move all three axes simultaneously. Then, if this is the surface, and then this is how you're moving your flat end mill, and then this is your surface, and this is how, if you're moving not horizontally, but you're continuously profiling, both of these make a continuous surface. Then, if you look in this direction, the transverse direction, um, there's an undulation from the passes of the flat end mill, but there's also an undulation from the passes of the ball end mill. So a flat end mill can make a smooth surface if you're moving all three axes at once. Um, in the end, a difference is if, you, if you're going into a bowl, the flat end mill might hit the sides where the ball end mill can go further in. And so because of the radius of curvature, um, the flat end mill bumps at the corner where the ball end mill can go a bit further in. But again, you'll see this over and over. A flat end mill with a three axis tool path can make a curving path. And so for a lot of purposes, because the flat end mill gives you flat surfaces, and if you change end mills, you have to zero the tools to align with each other. Often it's a much better idea to just do the finish cut with a three axis path with the flat end mill. It's only at some designs where it really benefits to switch to the ball end. So don't assume you have to go to a ball end for the finish cut. It really depends on the design. Okay. Last year, uh, using yeah. the flat end mill, uh, but designed the part itself to be uh, to, to have the slope itself yeah. to be uh, milled using the corner. And I think it's 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 probably because um, of the design itself. It, it 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 was designed to be milled using that specific end mill, the same uh, the same size one eighth. So yeah, it comes back to the design for manufacturing. As long as slopes meet with a, a curvature so there isn't a corner where you get cut, you can design around the mill, again, to eliminate. Again, to eliminate.
Neil. Yeah. Um, yeah. This is Yong from Seoul Innovation Film Lab. I actually yeah. milled yeah. Uh, with the flat end mill. I don't know if you can see the detail, but this is. Oh, that's beautiful. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. 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 The finishing was done with the uh, one millimeter diameter, but it's a flat end mill. Yeah. So again, that's a great example of. Flat end, flat end mill works great for curving surfaces. It's a much more subtle trade-off. You know, ball, the ball end mills tradition, the machine is turning the crank. It's much more complex when a computer is doing it. Now, here's, going back to Boss's comment, here's the caution. Um, you have the flute. Then, depending on the tool, there's a shank. Then there's a collet holding the tool, and then there's a spindle holding the collet. Every one of these is a potential collision. So um, this week, <clears throat> um, if you plow into the wax, it's not nearly as bad as setting your dust collector on fire, but you can ruin the job. The, if you plow into the wax, it'll smush, and the machine might scream, and then you stop, um, but you'll waste the job. And so you need to be aware of the depth of cut you get on your tool, and you need to be aware of the collisions. And so um, it's very easy this week um, to plow um, into the stock and ruin the job that you're doing. And so um, depending on the software you're using, it can help account for that, but you need to keep track of all of those things um, in the machining operation. Uh, so, um, for software this week, um, your boss, what are you showing? Oh, you're showing, uh, yeah, so I'm showing the design for, um, for the, um, uh, so these, these angles. So this is actually 164th, which could have worked with this as well. Um, so it's actually, um, be able, be able to get all the way down to hold it straight. The tool is cutting and it's right. just missing the shank. Right. So again, what would he actually here? I have the picture here. It, or, let me redraw it. So it, if you have the tool with its shank, with its flute, um, as long as slopes are shallower or are flatter than that, it means by slightly sloping it, um, you can go quite deep with the tool without hitting the shank. Um, okay, so uh, let's come back to the software for this week. Um, ShopBot um, has vCarve, which is a lovely tool, very powerful, does good uh, three-axis. Um, Fusion is uh, nicely integrated. Um, Fusion has beautiful three-axis cam built into it. Um, it does nice previewing of the cam. Um, lets you simulate it, um, progressed really well. Um, the uh, fab modules that I wrote, um, one of the things they let you do is you can take an image and you can actually use the image as a height map and machine the image directly. Um, that's neat. Um, there's a subtlety, which is 24-bit um, RGB is only 8 bits of grayscale unless you dither. So if you just if you don't dither, you lose resolution, but you can do that. Um, but in um, 
this example I showed you before was uh, reading an STL in. So here's what that looks like. Um, I'm going to read in an STL. Um, I'll pick the view. I'll render it. Then I'm going to do a rough cut first. So right now what it's doing is is a pretty aggressive uh, cuts for the rough cutting. Then once I'm done rough cutting, um, I'll redo it. And now what it's doing is these are the continuously profiling finished cuts. And you only do that after the rough cutting. Um, the challenge for your time this week is the smaller the step over, the smoother the finish. And so you'll be fighting over machine time because you, you want to do long jobs with small step overs um, to get a smooth finish. Um, and so you'll have to trade off just the amount of time per person on the machine. But this is now what the profiling finish cut looks at looks like. And this is doing the full three axis um, uh, cuts. Um, that's in the fab modules. Um, I'll port the code into mods. I haven't yet done that, but that'll be coming to mods as one of my jobs. Um, and so the example I showed at the beginning is um, this is this little self-inverting top. Um, so it's a design for a top that, that turns over when you spin it, which is a fun um, physics problem to explain why the top wants to go, go upside down. Um, and so in that example, um, this is the design for the mold with the bottom. Um, this is the design for the mold for the top. And I'm doing a couple tricks in the simple mold design. So one is you'll see I have um, the, the registration is the continuous perimeter. One whole mold fits in the other, so I get a good seam. Uh, the next is I have the parting line where the mold faces fit aligned with a feature in my design. So right at the lip of the top is a little bump, but you can't see it because it's aligned with that feature. And then I'm using, you need to fill in one place and vent in another. And so I'm using the spindle of the top as the fill. I'm using a feature in my design as part of how I do the filling. And then when I come out, when I demold, there's a little peg sticking up, which was the vent. And then you just snap that off and sand it um, to finish it. And so that's an example of each of those steps. Okay. So this is a lot, again, to go back. Um, the first thing I want you to do, this is a page um, from one of the, shop leaders at MIT talking about how to read a, an SDS. And um, what's difficult about reading them is um, if you take table salt or sugar and buy it from a chemical vendor, the SDS will sound dangerous because if you, you know, eat enough salt or get it in the wrong places, it can be hazardous. So all the SDSs talk about some hazards, but what you need to know about are dangers and warnings. You need to look for the telegraph words to say, this is a really bad one. 
Okay. So the first thing I want you to do is read the SDSs, which means you need to know the SACI data sheets for each of your materials. Then cast them. And my recommendation for this week is start with machinable wax, use the um, UMU, and then hydrostone and dry stone. That's a really friendly combination. That's a really good one for starting. And for this week's assignment, um, depending on what you're doing, um, this is a rigid mold to a flexible mold to a cast. If the goal is flexible parts, let's say you're making wheels for the vacuum cleaner, um, you can start by casting, casting the rubber in the wax. Um, if you have a very, very simple part, you can cast the plastic part directly in the wax. But for almost anything non-trivial, you want to go from the rigid to the flexible mold to the final part. And the reason is the demolding. Again, the flexible mold lets you make multi-part molds, lets you have overhangs. You don't have to worry about the surface angle. It's much more forgiving. And so um, for most purposes, you want to go from the rigid mold to the flexible mold um, to the finished part. And then um, it's very important for this week, just take a little cup and pour your materials in but practice mixing them. Make sure they're in good condition. Um, check to see how many bubbles you get. Make sure it sets properly. Um, the UMU sets at room temperature. The hydrostone and dry stone um, sets at room temperature. Um, the um, urethanes generally um, need to be warmed up a bit that they need to set at a slightly elevated temperature. Otherwise, you have to wait overnight at room temperature, but in an hour or so, you can demold if you warm it up a bit. So make sure you know how to set. Then design a 3D mold. Simplest is one part. You could make a 3D business card. A little bit better is two part. If you get adventurous, you can make a uh, multi-part mold. Um, I'm trying to think if I have an example of, um, if I have this online. Um, no, I don't have that online. Um, we, we did a part in my lab that had vertex-connected octahedra that were done with injection molding, a 12-part mold. There are actually 12 faces that came in to make all the parts of it, and then they would come out to take out this really complex part. Um, so design a mold and then machine it so you learn about three-axis uh, rough and finish cutting and cast your parts. Um, when you're done, compared to 3D printing, this will open up many more, more materials you can work with. Like a fun thing for this week is to do it with food, but be, be sure to use a food-safe material. You can do short-run production. Um, so like, oh, um, Troxes were done by um, let's see uh, Jonathan Bobrow. Let me find. He did a great example of molding. Oh no, automatiles. Um, so uh, this was. Let me see if I can find this quickly. 
Um, this was a student uh, in how to make, who did this week's assignment and it turned into a little product line of um, these automa tiles, which were done by a molding and casting project where he would cast these smart tiles. Um, was an example from this week. So design a mold, cast it. But what's nice is when you're done, you can do short run production. And from there, you can go directly to high volume production because you can take your mold design and transfer it to a rigid mold and put it in, in an injection molder. Hey, Neil. Yep. Uh, just can you talk about um, shrinkage of these materials? Do we need to compensate for that if we want them to fit with other things? Uh, none whatsoever. So one of the main jobs of all of these materials is, is perfect dimensional tolerance. Um, all bets are off on something like latex, but um, hydrostone, dry stone, smooth cast, umu, the casting urethanes, um, one of their jobs in life is deep section cures and completely perfect dimensional tolerance. There's absolutely no shrinkage. Um, uh, very, uh, very high um, uh, dimensional tolerance and fidelity. So, you know, if, if you just, if I let this run again on their site, it, you'll have fun browsing the smooth, smooth on sites. You know, the things come out exactly perfectly matching what you designed. Um, and in fact, a great way to explain that is um, nano imprint lithography. This was um, started by a colleague at Harvard. This is where you do molding and casting, um, but you do it with features that are nanometers. Ah, this is a great example. So um, this picture is, um, uh, this uh, looks like PDMS. So this is a fancy silicone, but it's a silicone. And the rainbow you see is the mold was cast on a grating that has features at optical resolution. And so when you peel it away, the silicone has actually picked up features as fine as the wavelength of light. Um, one of the things you'll see if you go back to um, some of the examples is the very finest shavings from the machining, um, you'll see all the way through. Your mold will pick up each pass of the machine tool. The very finest features will come out. Um, now, again, for materials, uh, I recommend start with umu, hydrostone, dry stone. Um, you can progress there from the urethanes uh, for rigid or flexible. And then uh, um, I don't recommend everybody do metal casting, but I'd like the labs to at least demonstrate it. And again, for metal casting, um, this material is great. Uh, there are lower temperature metals that have heavy metals that are hazardous. There are higher temperature metals that are high temperature and are hazardous. This is at a happy place in between. And so I recommend at least doing some test cast with the metal casting. A fun thing you could do this week um, is design custom coin, coins for your lab. Um, you, this melts within the range of a high temperature toaster oven. Don't use it for food ever again, but you could design custom uh, coins in your lab, for example, for this week. Questions or comments?
if not two weeks of no recitations um, over the break. I'll add one more line for this. You should catch up on missing assignments. Start looking ahead to machine building, wildcard week, and final project um, over the break um, with the uh, extra week. Um, so we won't see each other until um, April 4th. Um, then we're going to have a series of um, get back to electronics. Uh, we'll, we'll do sensors, then we'll do actuators, then we'll build interfaces, then we'll Excuse network. Me? Four weeks of electronics. Go ahead. Hi, Neil. Hi, Neil. Can you hear me? Yes, go ahead. This is Sarish Khan from FabLab Khairpur. Yeah. I just wanted to discuss my uh, uh, the idea of my final project. Oh boy, um, we don't really. Uh, let's see, we're we're out of time for that. Um, uh, just uh, we can't do that for everybody. Just tell me in words what is your idea. Uh, I actually want to. I actually want to make an acrylic-based edge-lit display uh, that's called Lixi tube, LED alternative to Nixie old tubes. And okay. uh, the, the person who sells these tubes commercially is known as Connor Nishijima. What actually I want to do is that 10 acrylic sheets are stacked together. And then uh, beneath each uh, acrylic are uh, LEDs, WS2812B yeah. LED. and okay. uh, in order to light up the particular uh, acrylic, uh, uh, which is uh, having yeah, a number yeah, right, right, on it. Yeah, let me interrupt for time. Let me say two things. Um, one thing is, uh, I'll say one thing to you and one to everybody. So um, a, a really, a thing that works fabulously is um, if you light acrylic from the edge and then you texture the surface, um, what's happening is um, there's internal confinement. And so if you light it from the edge, the light is bouncing, but then if you roughen it, it leaks out. So edge lit acrylic is gorgeous. And so you can make a beautiful display that way. But for time management, we don't have enough time to do this with everybody. Given this two week break, um, let me encourage everybody to use the issue tracker more. Um, so if you go into the class issue tracker, um, uh, go to 2018, um, go into the class site, <clears throat> and then the issue tracker. I'm going to start an issue, um, final project. Uh, final project, ideas, questions, comments. You don't need to be limited just by me. Um, this will go to everybody in the class and all of the instructors and students start using that to post questions and share ideas and also to collaborate. Um, things like the um, children's dresser with the windmill to look at collaboration. Use the issue tracker to use everybody for these questions, okay? Okay, thank you so much. I will be posting the issue in that. Good. Okay, so hopefully this Santifu, go ahead.
sorry, you're muted now. I don't hear you. Nope, don't hear you. Um, oh, is it yeah. okay? Uh, so can you talk a little bit more about uh, how to prepare uh, the design for injection molding? Um, so, well, there's two notes on that. Um, the, first of all, uh, I guarantee everybody this week is going to be confused when you go from the positive to the negative to the positive to the negative. It's hard to get your mind around it. You'll be confused. Um, but I, I, I was a bit glib in saying you can go right to injection molding in that injection molding, there's some differences from the soft tooling. So one is the, the, the design of an injection mold, the sprue has to be strengthened to handle the force of the molder pushing against it. So you have, you have a hardened part of the mold. The, the runner is when you're injecting the plastic, you don't want the molten plastic to go directly into your mold because the, the, at the front, it's not well melted and mixed. So you want it to overshoot the mold before it goes into the mold. And so the runners have to overshoot it. The, the gate is where it goes into the mold. And that's crucial because you don't want the gate to be visible in the design. The vent has to push the air out. And so um, when it's done right, it's a work of art. So if you visit, and it's very hard to visit, but if you visit where Lego does their injection molding, it's like jewelry. The molds are so beautiful with the optical finish. And this is all done so perfectly. Every brick comes out perfect with no finishing. But there's this like a temple in the middle of it where the mold makers design these molds. And so um, conceptually, those are the parts of it. Um, uh, but there's a lot of work of really art that goes in. There's um, uh, tools that are designed to simulate this because it's such an important process. There's a lot of art that gets into placing each, each of those parts for the injection mold. Um, but shops you work with can help with that transition. So a number of the vendors I mentioned for the job shops, if you come to them with a soft tooling mold, um, they can help you migrate it to an injection mold. But th there's a lot of just lore that goes into each of these steps or, or fairly substantial modeling. Okay, but but so it's not just a automatic, but it's 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 a a, a pretty straightforward transition. Uh, did you scope? Hello. Yep. Yes. Um, I, I was thinking of casting uh, mirrors optics uh, with a cold metal not have to do a, a coating on plastic. And after polish them, do you know if they have good reflection? Did you, did you try that before? Do you have guidances? Yeah, the... Um, the it will be the, a, the, a parabolic mirror. Yeah, I, I don't like that. The, so the, 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 the medium temperature metals, um, the finish isn't fabulous, but they do polish fairly nicely. Um, but it's fairly expensive to cover a large area that way. Um, uh, you know, it, if you wanted to make, a, let's see, what is the use case? What is it for? Um, it is an optical system that I use to collimate and uh, mix the light of LED. Okay, how big is the mirror? How big are the parts? Um, it's, it's half an inch diameter. 
Oh, and okay, sorry, it's, that's better. Okay. And, and, and it is maybe for yeah, 100 centimeter long, a millimeter long, 100. Okay. No, that's fine. I thought you were talking about a much bigger one. No, no. in that case, um, so uh, here, we're, oh, let me just do this and then, then we'll have to end. Um, so let's see, rotating glass cast um, telescope mirror. Some of the largest telescope mirrors are made by a spin casting process where what you do is you pour molten glass into a spinning mold yeah. and then the glass flows up into a parabola. You still have to polish it, but the idea is the polishing is very small. It's just the last. Yeah, well, it's like, yeah. But yeah, it, so, well, it's it's semi-parabolic, actually. It's more of a free form, so it's no, not like a... But what I was going to say was the, yeah, the, the metal casting material, um, it's a eutectic that has a grain structure, but it actually polishes nicely. I've never tried to actually make optics out of it. Um, you, you'll definitely have a polishing step. Yes. Um, and in fact, one of the things you should know is something like a, a Modella um, has, um, its positioning is good down to a few microns. And so you can polish by hand, but one of the things you can do is have a rotating buffing wheel, and the Modella itself can do buffing polishing passes um, mm. it, because it, it yes. actually positions down to microns. Yes. And so, yes, a, a and, and, and this it is for lighting, yes, I, I, I am not, it is for lighting, so I, I, I am not reaching for optical quality on yeah, the overall surface, I just need good reflection. So, so yes. a really fun exercise for this week would be cast the metal and then ha have like a lapping paste with a buffing wheel yeah. and have the modella do the, pa the passes. I'll be interested to see how good you can make it that way. Okay, I think I would. Thank you. Okay, so we're out of time. So uh, catch up on projects, look ahead to um, the coming assignments um, with the extra week, mold and cast. And then, yeah, a big goodbye because we won't see each other until April 4. So other than that, have a happy break. Bye. 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 Bye.